Welcome everyone to today's class. So um, before we start, it's just a word of advice. Um, while we are studying this version of the Gita, those who have Swami Patasati's book, the one we're studying from, while we're studying this, try not to read any other version of the Gita. Try not to watch like YouTube videos on different interpretations of the Gita. The reason I say this is that there's a certain thought flow that Swamiji has developed in this book. And if we follow this, then we'll have a better, deeper understanding of the Gita. And watching or reading other versions will confuse you while we're studying this. Because everyone has their own interpretations. We're following this one. So let's just focus on this one. After we've finished this version, you can read whatever, anything, it doesn't matter. But just stick to this if you can, so there's no confusion and you know you follow that thought flow. Also, if you want to get the maximum out of these classes, then I would suggest making short notes, just the points for each verse, and then in your own time, study it. Also, if the group wants, we can start group discussion this week. You'll have an opportunity to raise any questions that arise from your study or from this class. So, and remember one thing, it is not how much knowledge you gain, but how much you convert to wisdom. And then you can live life by that wisdom. You may become fluent in all 700 verses, become a scholar, but not change in any way as a person because you have knowledge, but not wisdom. Or you may study a few verses, convert it to wisdom, and then live your life by its teachings and you're a changed person. So unlike other subjects, it is not the length of study, but the depth of study. Any questions? Does that make sense? Any questions? See, one verse has the power to change your life. If you get to the depth of that verse. Yeah. So unlike other, um, uh, other subjects, this is very, very different. Okay. Any, any questions? So we all have a picture, Murti, statue of Krishna in our home. Some have been to Hare Krishna temple, but most of us don't know what his teaching is. You all have the Gita at home. You don't know how important his teaching is to live our life by. We now have the opportunity to understand what Krishna represents. What does he represent? Any idea? What does Krishna represent? What does Krishna represent? Yeah, Vanita? He represents the, the Atma in you. Yeah. What else? Anybody else? What does Krishna represent? 
Yeah, Dramesh. The state of enlightenment. State of enlightenment, enlightenment, absolutely. Krishna represents a perfect human being. Not to say that we're imperfect, but he represents the pinnacle of a human being. So through his knowledge, his words of wisdom, we can all aspire to not only become better, happier human beings, but also be able to understand the purpose of life. And some of you may be inspired to reach that state of perfection, which Dharma said is self-realization. So that's the goal of a human being, a perfect human being. So Krishna represents this. So therefore, it's natural to say that if we follow him, hopefully we'll get there one day. So this, the second chapter, is called the Yoga of Knowledge. First chapter was called Yoga of Arjuna's Despondency, meaning his hopelessness. He collapsed. He couldn't fulfill his duty. Arjuna has now completed his argument as to why he should not fight this war. His whole argument is based on ignorance, lack of knowledge. So what he's saying has no value. All the reasons he gives are based on his own attachments to his relatives, fighting for the core of a side. And as you heard in the last verse, he has now completely exhausted himself and surrendered to Krishna, who has been quietly listening to Arjuna for the last 50 verses without saying anything. But Krishna is waiting for this moment when Arjuna says three things. I am your disciple. I take refuge in you. Krishna, please guide me, instruct me what I should do now. So when a person says this, means he is ready now to receive the guidance, Krishna's guidance. And from this chapter, Krishna gives him the knowledge to remove his ignorance. As I mentioned before, Arjuna and Krishna were friends. Arjuna knew that Krishna was wise. They did not know that his friend had such knowledge. So Krishna blasts him with the highest knowledge. So Arjuna is stunned, astonished. Wow, Krishna, I didn't know you knew all this. That's amazing. I'll do whatever you say, Krishna. So in this chapter, he gives Arjuna knowledge, knowing full well that it's going to go over Arjuna's head. Because Arjuna is in an emotional state. When anyone's emotional, they're not ready to receive any knowledge. They can't understand. The intellect's not available. So in this chapter, he gives the highest knowledge. Then the chapter three, Krishna begins his sermon from, from right from the beginning, from the basics. So we're going to be blasted with the highest knowledge. So don't worry too much if you don't get it, if it goes above your head. Whatever you get, that's fine. Because after, when we start chapter three, we will go through all of it all over again. But do question. Any questions? 
Okay, great. So we're going to do four verses today, nine to 12. So we'll start with verse nine. As you know, last first Krishna has collapsed. I do not see that which can remove the grief which is drying up my senses. Even on obtaining prosperous and unrivaled kingdom on earth and lordship over the gods, he cannot understand, he cannot think, Arjuna. So now, he's collapsed. Sanjaya speaks. Verse 9. Sanjaya uvacha eva mukvarishi kesham gudakesha parantapa Nayotsya iti govinda mukvatusnim babuvaha Sanjaya uvacha eva mukvarishikesham gudakesha parantapa Nayotsya iti govinda mukvatusnim babuvaha Sanjaya said, having spoken thus to Rishikesha, Gudakesha, the destroyer of foes, said to Govinda, I will not fight, and became silent. So, don't worry about too much of the names. All that means is that Sanjaya in this verse says to the destroyer, remember, this, they are looking at the battle from far away, from Hastinapur. The destroyer is blind. Sanjaya is power to look and see what's going on and hear what's going on. And he's able to convey this to the king, the district. He says, Arjuna has collapsed. He's saying to Krishna, who is called by the name Rishikesha and Govinda. Krishna has been called two names, Rishikesha and Govinda. That I won't fight. And he has become silent. Arjuna is called by the name Gudakesha, meaning destroyer of foes. Because he was the greatest warrior. And he's saying, I won't fight. This is a terrible situation. That's why he's calling him Gudakesha. This high, powerful warrior is saying, I won't fight. It is like Mike Tyson in his peak boxing career saying, I won't fight anymore. He's saying, I won't fight. So what does this signify? When in life, when you work based on your own selfish interest, you lose the energy to work. You become frustrated eventually, tired. You look forward to retirement. That's it, I've worked my life, I don't wanna work anymore. If you work from an unselfish attitude for a higher purpose in life, to help others beyond your own selfish interest, you can work with energy and passion for a long time. Arjuna is looking from his own personal attachment. Hence, he has lost the will to fight. So anything when you do selfish, the energy is limited. Unselfish, you can carry on doing it without any problems. 
So at the moment, Arjuna is looking from a selfish perspective. These are my cousins, my family. How can I fight them? What would his unselfish approach be? Dharmesh? You do what's good for the kingdom. Good for the kingdom. Yeah. Go beyond his selfish attachment and think of the kingdom. What's right for this kingdom? It's my role to put it right. Anita. Sanjaya speaks again to King Dhritarashtra. He reports that Arjun, te Arjun tells Krishna he will not fight and becomes and become silent. Rishikesha is Krishna, literally meaning the Lord of Senses. Gudakesha is Arjuna, meaning the conqueror of sleep. Sanjaya also refers to Arjuna as Parantapa, which means destroyer of foes. This verse disrupts the end of self-centered activities. When a person engages himself in action, actions directed towards his own selfish interests, he gradually loses enthusiasm in his work. He develops emotional and intellectual fatigue. It ultimately results in sensation of his activities. Most people in the world today face this problem. They develop a nausea for work. They even give up their businesses or professions or opt for premature retirement. And those who continue to work for their own interests alone look forward to holidays and vacations. A clear indication of shrinking work. On the contrary, a person who works for a higher ideal, a noble cause, remains ever enthusiastic and energetic. He revels in whatever he does. The philosophy of the Gita lifts Arjuna from his depression and his state of inertia to an awakening of his duties and responsibilities. Krishna instills the concept of working for a selfless goal rather than an ego and egocentric desires. After listening to Krishna's brilliant exposition, Arjun wakes up from his stupor, fights the battle and emerges victorious. This symbolizes that the wisdom of the Gita can help anyone overcome the challenges that meet one in life and create success for both mater materially and spiritually. So the philosophy we're studying has this power to lift us and be successful materially and spiritually. What more do we want? Isn't that what everyone's looking for? We're all looking for material wealth, happiness. Some are looking for spiritual development. Whatever it is you're looking for. Arjuna is not looking for spiritual development. He's looking to fight this war. And the knowledge of the Gita is going to help him do that. In fact, after the chapter, 18 chapters, he says to Krishna, Krishna, what did you do? What did you say to me? Whatever you said to me, help me and fight this all. But really, I don't I didn't understand any of it. Afterwards, he forgets everything. So this is the power of the Gita. Any questions? Yeah, go. Cool. 
I just want to ask a question. It's uh, not really related to much of the text. But over here, we say that uh, Krishna is also called uh, Rishikesa. Yeah. And that means Lord of Senses. Yeah. Uh, I'm just asking because at this point, no one really knows who Krishna is, right? Yeah. So how is it that we are giving him these names such as Lord of Senses? Like, I'm, I'm just a bit confused. And as, as other people or like does Sanjaya know that he is who he is? Anybody would like to answer that? Why is it called Lord of Senses? We did, we have covered it before. Why is Krishna called Lord of Senses? And then I'll ask them, we'll ask them, answer the second question they will ask. What does Lord of the Senses mean? What does senses mean? Termesh. Is it because he controls all the senses and he doesn't allow them to influence? Can you put it up a bit or go near the mic? Is it because he controls all the senses so he doesn't allow them to influence his decisions? Yeah. So we take in the world by our five senses. Eyes take in the world. With, with the eyes, you see things. With the nose, you smell things. With the mouth, you taste things, touch, hearing. Those are the five senses. And these senses are uncontrolled. They come from the mind and they're uncontrolled. What controls them is the intellect. Person overeats, he has no control of his eating. Yeah. Person wants to listen, smell, they have no control over it. They'll go over all over the world just to see things, smell things, hear things. They have no control and they're guided. Their whole life is guided by the senses. So control of the senses is a person who's got a developed intellect, has full control over his personality, his mind. That's why it's called controller of senses. And he's a man of perfection, as we said. So a perfect, perfect human being has full control of his personality. Now, your second question, Sanjaya is speaking. Sanjaya knows Krishna is God. Sanjaya knows it's Lord Krishna. If Arjuna was speaking, he just says Mr. Krishna. Because for Arjuna, Krishna is just his friend, childhood friend. But Sanjaya knows. He's more wise. He knows this is. That's why he, he's been telling the Drishtra, listen, Krishna is on their side and he's saying all these names. So that maybe it might click to the Drishtra. Hang on. My boys are going to die. God on one side and human beings on the other side. There's no contest. Yeah, Kevin. So, uh, excuse me. So at this point, only Sanjaya knows that Krishna is Lord, right? Is the Lord. Yes. No one else. Okay. No one else. Okay. That makes a lot more Four sense. of us think he's just Mr. Krishna, and so does the Pandavas. That's why Arjuna is saying, I didn't know you knew all this knowledge. Where did you get this knowledge from? Yeah. No, no it makes a lot more sense now. You, uh, yeah. yeah. Sanjay knows from, he's a devotee of Krishna, Sanjay. Yeah. Because you have to be a spiritual person to understand the spirit. Uh, you yourself have to be spiritually developed to understand a spiritual person. And Sanjay is spiritually developed. The values, Krishna's values, Sanjay understands. 
Is that okay? Yeah. Any other questions? Verse 10. Tamu Sena yorubayor matye vishitantamitam vachaha. To him who was despondent in the midst of the two armies, Vishikesha, smiling as it were, spoke these words, O Bharata. So Sanjaya is saying to Didisha, Sanjaya says, Arjuna the despondent, meaning hopeless, dejected. Arjuna's dejected. So he called him, calls him despondent. Between the two armies, Krishna, with a smile, said these words, which, of course, is in the next verse. Krishna speaks in verse 11. So he's just preparing us all. They're in between the two armies. Arjuna's fallen, and Krishna is smiling and saying, these words, which comes in the next verse. Why is Arjuna, why is Krishna smiling? Why is Krishna smiling? Yeah, Ramesh? Arjuna's got to a stage where he's going to listen now. Your mic is very low. Uh, Arjuna's got to a stage where he's given up and he's accepting information. So he's at a state where he's prepared to listen and he's asked for help. Okay, so Krishna is smiling, uh, Arjuna, because Krishna has understood Arjuna's mental state. He's been listening to him for 50 verses quietly, and now he smiles because he knows what medicine to give Arjuna. He understands his predicament. He understands where he is, the situation, the state, his mental state is. And he knows exactly what he must say, what he must do to get Arjuna out of this situation. Krishna is the Lord. He knows everything that needs to be known. And I, we don't mean Krishna is the Lord, he knows everything in that, in that state. Well, he's someone higher, therefore he must know everything. He knows because he's a perfect human, perfect man of perfection. He knows how a human being functions. You know, we say before you came to these classes, you, you didn't know about the five senses that are controlled by the mind what the intellect's role is, what the role of the Atman is, all this you've learned in this knowledge. Krishna has reached that stage of perfection. He knows everything that needs to be known. So Krishna and Arjuna placed between the two armies, in the middle of the two armies. The two armies represent the good and the bad nature of a human being. That's the significance of being in the middle of the field between the two armies. Good on one side, bad on the other. Representing the good and the bad nature of a human being. 
the pairs of opposites. As we said, this world is made of the pairs of opposites. What is this good and bad nature of a human being? Any idea? Good nature, everyone knows what good and bad is. What is good and the bad nature of a human being? Vanita. So the good would be your selflessness, I think, and the bad would be your ego and the the bad thoughts you have, I suppose. Okay. Very good. Anybody else? What is good and bad nature of a human being? Arunabin? I think it's when we try and control our senses and not act on them, but try and manage to think about before acting. Mm -hmm. So that it, it doesn't become bad because we can't, we all have kind of these feelings sometimes, but by actually stopping and thinking rather than acting, so it doesn't become bad. Okay. So we all act on vasanas and desires. Everyone knows that. Vasanas manifest as thoughts, manifest as desires. And the body acts. Vastamas, thoughts, desires, action. That's, that is a human being. So you can have good or bad vasanas. When you act on good vasanas, good desires, you generate more good desires. Generate more good desires and more good actions. You may do charity work, helps you become a better human being, more unselfish, more selfless. These are good vasanas. Yeah? If you act on your negative vasanas, your bad desires, you continue becoming a bad person. You generate more bad desires, more bad actions. As Vanita said, egoistic. Selfish person thinks only for himself. These are bad vasanas. So, what does me being in the middle of the two, in the middle of the field, Krishna and Arjuna, in the middle of the two armies? It means neither good nor bad. Now, we're going to come to this. It means neither good nor bad. You rise above the good and bad desires. You surrender to the higher. What is the higher? Anyone? The teachings of Krishna, the teachings of the Lord, spiritual knowledge. In this case, teaching of Krishna in the Gita. When you surrender to that knowledge and you act based on that, get knowledge of the self, God. Then when, with this teaching, you act based on neither good nor bad vastness. Instead, you act on what you ought to do in life. Now, let me re-explain that. Good actions, good desires, good vastness. Good vastness manifest into good desires, manifest into good actions. 
charity work, for example. Bad vasanas manifest as bad desires, bad action. But both of those generate new vasanas. You see the difference? They, good or bad, they both generate new, more vasanas, more desires. I want to become the head of this charity. I want to, uh, I want to raise millions of pounds for this charity. These are more desires, but they're good desires. But when you act based on spiritual development, spiritual knowledge, you, you act based on what you ought to do in life. Neither good nor bad vasanas generate. In, instead, what you're doing is reducing your vasanas, reducing your desires. So when you act based on the spiritual knowledge that we're learning, you don't generate any new vasanas. Why is it important to reduce your vasanas? Anyone? Going back to basics now. Zermish. Your vasanas are the barrier to connecting to oneself, yeah. true self. Megna, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say that it's that equation, human plus desires equals God. Perfect. Where your desires, so then you become your true self. Yeah. God plus vasanas desires equals human being. Therefore, human being minus vasanas equals God. We are all God. We've forgotten that though. This is the problem. So the goal in life is to reduce your vasanas, not generate new ones, neither good or bad. Any questions? See, you're all born with a bundle of vasanas, whatever they are. Without knowing it, we're increasing those. While exhausting them, we're increasing them with our desires because we don't understand. When you follow the spiritual path, it teaches you how to act on the vasanas you will have and reduce them without increasing them. Then you're getting closer to the self, God, the true personality. Don't worry, if it sounds deep, um, we will be covering it again later. Any questions? Does it make sense? The goal of human being is to reduce the desires to zero. Then you and God are one. You become your Godhood. Kevin. I was just going to say, it's for me, I mean, out of all these classes that we've been doing, for like I've been part of for like the last year or so, the only glimmer of hope I see is that they, at some point when, you, when, we, when we do attain spirituality, we have the possibility to eliminate all our vasanas. Uh, but other than that, I think we just keep piling them on, right? <laughs> Not necessarily. See, once you gain the wisdom, you see today we've learned this, yeah? It's knowledge. You understand it. Makes sense. Krishna is saying it, it makes sense. But we forget, after the class is finished, we forget. Yeah. So we need to convert that into wisdom. When we then convert that to wisdom, you're aware 
okay, I'm going to perform this action. I need to make sure that I don't develop new desires. Even if you do that one out of 10 times, you're reducing your vastness. Yeah, but the other nine times you're still piling them on, right? <laughs> 10% is better than 100%, isn't it? 10% reduction is better. You're moving in the right direction, but it's still exactly. not, yeah. You see? I mean, it's incredibly difficult, right, to um, to to understand that and to, to actually put it into practice. I think that's sort of the difficult part that we need to try and... Well, Krishna hasn't started speaking yet, so we haven't gained any knowledge or wisdom yet. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's wait till we've had that. <laughs> then we can take it from there. So when we reach the 18th chapter, you can then say, well, okay. Another thing, um, so you were explaining about the good and bad vasanas. Uh, mm -hmm. Someone else once gave me a, a different uh, analogy. So if you think about going into a building at the ground floor, and then there's 10 floors above you and 10 basement floors below you, the 10 floors above are your positive karmas and the 10 floors below are your negative karmas. And your goal in life is to get out the building. And the only way you can get out is through the ground floor where you have no vasanas. Yep, absolutely. Perfectly put. But this is how what this is our goal in life now. If you understand it or not, that's down to your own vasanas, really. But you're all here taking in this knowledge, so it's going to have some effect. It can only have some positive effect. See, before these classes, you were ignorant of the whole scenario, even that equation. You were ignorant of that equation. Now, Meghna just repeated that equation, so she's now aware. So what's the next stage? Practice. Awareness is the first thing. Then you can practice it. Yeah, any other questions? And the thing is, Kevil, while you even if you don't get to the goal, the journey is filled with happiness, peace, your mental agitations are reduced. Your relationship vigil will increase. What more do you want? Even if you don't get to the goal. Yeah, I guess, looking for happiness. I guess like if we don't get to the goal in this life, there's another thing we can take comfort in is the fact that the, the progress we've made on the journey is preserved for the next. Absolutely. Eventually we'll get to the goal. Yeah. So don't lose hope. <laughs> yeah, it's better to start and walk on the path then not start at all. Yeah. Any other questions? Great question. Thank you, Kill. So, life is to reduce your vastness, not increase them. Why do these great saints go and live in a cave, away from everything, so that there's no opportunity for them to increase their vastness, <laughs> away from society, away from everything? First, now the Gita begins. You've endured seven classes. This, now the Gita begins. Oh, sorry. Um, Emma, if you can read the commentary, please. You're on mute. You're on mute, Emma. I can't hear you.
Uh, we can't hear you, Emma. Nope. Shall I read it, Emma? Yeah? We can't hear you. Okay, Come on, I'll, I'll read it. Sanjaya continues his narration to Dhritarashtra, whom he addresses as Bharata. He tells Dhritarashtra that Rishikesha, Krishna, now begins to speak with a smile on his face. Krishna may well be smiling at the striking disparity between Arjuna's lofty reputation as the supreme warrior of his time and his shameful behavior as an unmanly coward. There could be another plausible reason for his smile. In the face of his grave problem, Arjuna had completely surrendered to Krishna for help. Krishna understood clearly Arjuna's state of mental depression. He had a ready solution to revive Arjuna, to restore his true sense of duty and induce him to fight for righteousness. The inner satisfaction of having a specific cure for Arjuna's mental paralysis could have brought a smile to his lips. The message of the Gita was given in the midst of the two armies. Verse 21 and 24 of chapter 1, as well as this verse, state this. The persistent reference to Krishna placing the chariot between the Pandava and the Paurava forces is significant. The Pandavas and the Pauravas represent the good and the bad in a human being. Good and bad are merits acquired by desire-ridden activities. When your actions are propelled by good desires, you acquire good vasanas, inherent tendencies. They mold you into a good person. Likewise, actions propelled by bad desires make you a bad person. Only when you extricate yourself from the influence of the good and bad desires and surrender to the higher intellect, in this case, charioteer Krishna, do you get knowledge of the self, knowledge of God. That explains why the Gita was imparted between the two armies. So the Gita now begins. Verse 11. Shri Bhagavanuvacha Asochyanan Vasochastvam Pradnyavadamscha Basase Gatasunagatasunscha Nanusochanti Panditaha Shri Bhagavanuvacha Asochyanan Vasochastvam Vam Prajnavadams Chabasase Gata Suna Gata Sumscha Nanu Sochanti Panditaha. The Blessed Lord said, You have been grieving for those that should not be grieved for, and you speak words of wisdom. The wise grieve neither for the living nor for the dead. You have been grieving for those that should not be grieved for, Krishna telling Arjuna. The wise, meaning a person who understands the truths of life, does not grieve for the living nor for the dead. 
And Arjuna, you speak words of wisdom? What are you talking about? What does this mean? We all have knowledge, but as you said, we don't have wisdom. What does this verse mean? We all know. We all, we all have the knowledge. When we are born, there's one guarantee. We're going to die. Correct? Some of us live maybe we're lucky or unlucky, 70 to 100 years old. You know it's a matter of time. Everyone knows that, right? Anyone not know that? The fact you're born, you will die. Every minute, countless births are taking place. Countless deaths are taking place. People are coming, people are going. This is the law of the universe. This is part of life. We all know this. So why are you grieving, Arjuna? It's a lack of wisdom that we grieve for the dead. The sun sets every evening and rises every morning. This is a fact. Do you grieve when the sun sets every evening? Oh no, it's gonna get dark now. What will we do? Do you celebrate every morning when the sunrise comes up? No. You know this is a natural occurrence, you accept that. Similarly, birth and death is a natural occurrence. And the wise who understand this do not grieve, Arjuna. And anyway, Arjuna, you're grieving for people who are not worthy of your compassion. These Kauravas are bad people. Look all they have done to you and, your, and the kingdom. They've decimated everything. They're evil people. What's making Arjuna grieve? What causes him to grieve? Vanita? It's his attachments that he's got. His attachment. His attachment to his family, his cousins, his guru. And that's what's causing the problem. Wrong understanding of life and death. This is what Krishna is saying. Why are you grieving? Life and death is part and parcel of life. See, in the first verse, Krishna stuns Arjuna. If Arjuna understands this verse, no need to go on for another 700 verses. That's it. But Arjuna is not ready to take on this knowledge yet. As we said, his emotional state is just going in one ear, coming out the other. That's why Krishna is saying this highest knowledge. He knows Arjuna is not going to get it. So we continue. Any questions? Life and death is part and parcel. If you are grieving, it's your own attachment. Look, we're not saying someone passes away in your family, you shouldn't grieve. 
Yeah. The mind feels, it feels emotions. It's natural to grieve. But the problem is when the grief takes over your full personality and you now are dead, you can't function. You're a warrior and you can't fight because the grief has taken over. So yes, grieving is a natural process. I think in the in our Hindu, they allow what, 12 days of grief, is it? 12 days, and then they bring nice food and they try to lift you up, you know, that process. So yes, they understand grief, 12 days, no problem. But then you need to carry on with life because life and death is part and parcel. Someone not to die, it's normal. Ravi. Lord Krishna starts his great sermon to the despondent and fallen Arjuna. Such outstanding teachers often open their discourses with a striking truth. Krishna says the wise do not grieve either for the dead whose breath has gone, Gattusan, or for the living whose breath has not gone, Agatusan. The procession of departing soul is unending. The wise understand this inevitable phenomenon. They accept birth and death as part and parcel of life. Birth does not excite and death does not deject them. Therefore, Arjuna's grief and dejection only indicate a lack of wisdom. And yet he speaks words of wisdom. Here at the commencement of the sermon, Krishna points out to Arjuna the pettiness of his lengthy arguments that have comprised the text so far. Moreover, Arjuna grieves for those who do not deserve such emotion. The Kauravas led an unethical life. They usurped the kingdom through foul means. They brought unrighteousness to the country. Yet Arjuna grieves for them. His emotions arise from his egocentric attachment to his kith and kin. He lacks an objective view of the situation. Krishna draws Arjuna's attention to his wrong approach to life. Any questions? Okay. Verse 12. Nave paham jatu nasam Nabam ne me jana pitaha Nacheva nabavishyamaha Sarve vayamataparam Nave paham jatu nasam Nabam ne me jana dipaha Nacheva nabavishyamaha Sarve vayamataparam Never indeed was I not, nor you, nor these rulers of men. Also none of us will cease to be here hereafter. This is a very powerful verse. What is Krishna saying? Anyone? Never indeed was I not, nor you, 
nor these rulers of men, meaning the Koravas. Also, none of us will cease to be here, be here hereafter. It's cryptic language, Vinta. He's saying that, the, say, like the embodiment of myself and you and all these men on earth. And then he's saying, basically, when we die, there's still going to be more people after us. But it's not true, I suppose, in a way. Like, it's okay. illusion. Slightly, conf slightly confusing. Yeah. Okay. What he's saying is, I is the self, and the self is God. Okay? Self is permanent. He's saying, we never cease to exist, meaning we never die. Never indeed was I not, nor you, nor these rulers of men. Also, none of us will cease to be here hereafter, meaning we never die. We never cease to exist. Now, strange thing is, previous verse he said, we are all born and we all die. <laughs> and now he's saying we never die. So this is the confusion the Gita, you think you read it and think, what? What's he saying? One minute he's saying we all die. What's the problem? Why are you grieving? And now he's saying we don't die. So for this, we need to explain. Uh, I don't know, we're going to read it in paragraphs, if that's all right. Can you read the first paragraph, please? A human being is constituted of spirit and matter. The spirit is the supreme self called Atman. Matter is the body, mind, intellect, equipment. The body is made of gross matter. The mind and intellect are made of subtle matter. These three matter equipments are inert and insentient by themselves. But on contacting Atman, they've gained sentiency. Atman is the sentient principle, the life-giving force or power. Atman relates to body, mind, intellect as electricity to a bulb. A bulb in itself has no light, nor does electricity, but a bulb making contact with electricity results in a brilliant expression of light. Similarly, the material components have no life, nor does Atman, but the combination brings about a scintillating expression of light. So you're saying, <laughs> Give an example, we all know electricity. Electricity has no life, correct? A bulb has no life. But when electricity is connected to a bulb, there is light. There is an expression of light. You can use that example for anything. The power of the electricity in contact with the bulb creates light. Similarly, we as humans, our body, mind, and intellect, has no life. But only when it, a material layers come in contact with the Atman, the spirit, the self, the God principle, whatever we want to call it, is there life. This is what it's saying. Uh, Ravi, can you show that diagram, please? So this is a human being, self, conscience. Conscience meaning life. When it enlivens the body, the mind, the intellect, then there is life. 
Without that consciousness, the Atman, the self, there is no life. So imagine the self is electricity. And you can replace the body, mind, intellect with a bulb, with washing machine, microwave oven. None of those things will work without the electricity. Similarly, we will not function without the self in living us. So as we, some of the new people who have joined us, the body, so the intellect thinks, discriminates, reasons, judges, directs. The mind feels emotions, impulse, likes and dislikes. And the body acts, either propelled by the mind with its feelings and emotions or with the intellect with its thoughts and reason. This is a human being. What's missing here is the arrow below the self. There should be vasanas. It's on another diagram. Thank you, Ravi. So, humans, our body, mind, intellect has no life. Only when it comes in contact with the Atman is there life. Paragraph two, please. Atman is the core of the human being. This core is the same in one and all. It exists eternally. It existed in the past. It exists in the present. It will exist in the future. It persists all through your life. It does not change or die even after your death. It is a substratum of all beings. Krishna confirms this truth in this present verse. Atman is in all living beings, it's saying. All life. And it's the same in all of us. We all have the same Atman. The Atman existed in the past in the, and it exists now in the present and will exist in the future. Atman is eternal, does not die. Atman is what makes up all beings. Same as electricity running through all gadgets. When Atman and the material layers come in contact, there is an expression of life. Any questions? Is that clear to everyone? So what dies then? What dies, Emma? Your mic's not working. Gotta check it checked out. What dies? Yeah, Magna? Your body, your physical body. Only your physical body dies when you die. Nothing else. So what is this Atman? We all know it. We all know what Atman is. We use it every day in our life. We use the word that represents Atman throughout our life without knowing it. What is that word that we use? Dharmesh. The soul. Soul? No. You don't say soul every day, do you? What do you say? Nilam? I. I. We use the term I all throughout our life without actually understanding what this I means. 
You say, I'm a child. You grow up, you say, I'm a teenager. I'm an old man. Who is this I? The child is not the teenager. The teen teenager is not an old man. They're different. But your constant is I. I am a child. I am a teenager. Everything is changing about you except for the I. You use that throughout your life. I think I am going to die. Everything is changing except for the I. Who is this I? So you're referring to the I every day. That is the Atman, the self, without knowing it. Next paragraph, please. In your childhood, when asked who you are, you declare, I am a child. Later in life, you answer the same question by saying, I am a youth. Towards the end of your life, I am an old man. The child is not the youth. The youth, the youth is not the old man. Yet you equate them all to I am. I am persists throughout your life. That is your real self, your true identity, Atman. But childhood, youth, and old age condition your real self. You lose your true identity. Nevertheless, your real self remains constant and changeless. It continues eternally. Thank you. So, because of your lack of identification, your lack of knowledge and wisdom, you don't realize the I is the permanence in you, the self, the spirit, the Atman, even though you use it ignorantly every day. The only thing constant in your life. You go through three states of consciousness, every human being. Right now, you're all awake, I hope. Tonight, you'll all go to sleep. You'll be dreaming. Then you're going to deep sleep. Right now, you are Hema, Hema Patel. The night you go to bed, you dream. You could be anybody. Could be a completely different person in the dream. You could be queen of the country if you wanted to be in the dream. Then you, you go into deep sleep. In all three states, you say right now, I am the waker, I am Hema. In the dream, you say, I am the queen, queen of this country. In the deep sleep, you are nothing. So even throughout these three states of consciousness, you're using this term I, which is the constant. All three states are different. We won't go into it too deeply, but we're using this word I throughout our life, even when we're not aware of it. Similarly, you go through the three states of consciousness, waking, dream, and deep sleep. The continuous cycle of these three states of existence makes up your life. You are either awake or dreaming or in a dreamless deep sleep. 
In the waking state of consciousness, you declare, I am Gupta, a married man, well settled in life. In the dream state of consciousness, you swear, I am Thomas, a poor bachelor. In deep sleep, I am nothing. You accept without reservation that Gupta and Thomas are different and that neither of them is nothing. Yet you equate all three to yourself. How can the one self be equivalent to three unequal factors? Thus you are in not Gupta, you are not Thomas, you are not nothing. You are the supreme self. You are the supreme self. Trying to, trying to explain to you, you are the self, you're not this person. It takes time to understand because we identify with our physical body, our mind and intellect. Please continue. King Janaka ruled a state in India. He was known for his spiritual greatness. One night in his palace, he dreamed he was a beggar suffering from penury and starvation. He woke up terrified. Immediately, summoning the wise men of his kingdom, he posed this question to them. Am I King Janaka who dreamt that I was a beggar? Or am I a beggar now dreaming that I am a king? Sage Astavakra gave the answer. You are neither the king nor the beggar. You are the self. So if you understand that uh, example, King Janaka, king, in his dream, he thought he was a beggar. But the dream is so real. See, when you go to sleep and you dream, that dream is so real. Someone chasing you, you wake up sweaty. Oh, I just had a nightmare. It's so real for the dreamer. So he had this dream, he was a beggar. So when he woke up, he called the wisest people, said, am I the king dreaming that I was the, I'm the beggar? Or am I the beggar now dreaming that I'm the king? Which one is it? That's how real they were. So his advisor, sage Astavakra, spiritually developed, said, king, you are neither the beggar nor the king. You are the self. You are not the body, mind, intellect. You are not Mr. and Mrs. Patel. You are the I, the self. This I is your real personality. It's because of our wrong identification that we suffer in life. Throughout all experiences, seeing, hearing, all different experiences, but I is the same. You say, I feel happy, I feel sad. Same I. I love you, I hate you. Same I. Different experiences. You and everything around you is changing in life. Nothing stays permanent. The only thing real is the I, the self. It's the only unchanging factor in our life. And it is the I which is our true personality. And from this verse, what he's saying is even when you die, the I continues. I never dies. See, once you reach the height of spiritual development, you'll come to the conclusion 
everything is the I. You, me, the world, everything, the universe, it's all the I. It's all Brahman, it's all God, it's all the self. There is nothing else. When you reach that height, that's what the understanding you will have. So if everything is the self, Brahman, what are the differences? There are no differences between any of us. But we all choose to identify not with the permanent, but the impermanent. I identify with Dharmesh, not with the self in Dharmesh. I identify with Deepa, not the self in Deepa. And that's where all the problems occur. Now, if you identify with the self in everyone, where are the problems? No grief, nothing. No differences, nothing. Arunabhan, last paragraph, please. The self remains the same in the three states throughout your life. The same self persists unchanged even after death. The very same self exists in all beings internally. Never does the real self cease to exist in you or in anyone. Hence, birth and death have no particular significance for the wise. So the wise person understands this. To this person, birth and death has no meaning. There is no death. The Atman is eternal. This is what Krishna is saying in this verse. Never indeed was I not, nor you, nor these rulers of men. Also, none of us will cease to be hereafter. Krishna personifies the Lord, the self. He identifies with everyone with the Atman, the self. So there is no birth and death. Atman is eternal. So we see, this is the uh, chapter two is uh, of a very high level of um, philosophy. And whatever you get, you get. Don't worry, because we tone it all down from chapter three. So, any questions? Did everyone understand reasonably well what is being said? Good. So, group discussion. Who is interested in having a group discussion? Because we get now get into these sort of deep verses, we need to, we can't get it in the class. We have to think about it. And if there's questions arise, we can take them up in class. If people are interested, we can. I'm happy to take a group discussion one evening for an hour, um, where you can question what is being general questions or what we've studied in on the Sunday class. So um, if you want, we can start this week. It's up to you. So raise hands, who would like to? One, two, three, four, okay. So five, six, that's fine, seven. So we'll, that's enough. I only need two people <laughs> and myself. Any extra is a bonus. Um, so uh, we used to have it on a Wednesday at 7.30 for an hour. Is that suitable for everyone? Anyone it's not suitable for? Hema, it's not suitable for? Still, not so for you. Where are you going? Uh, what other day 
Does anyone suggest another day? Thursday, some settlers, Tuesday, settlers saying. I don't know if that gives people enough time to reflect. Tuesday could be good, but this, I mean, you just had the class. Yeah. Sometimes okay. it helps us to, because by Thursday, you might have forgotten what you wanted to talk about. Fair enough. Uh, is Tuesday okay for everyone? Anyone Tuesday is not suitable for? Sorry, Deepa, does that mean yes or no? Okay. Anyone Tuesday is not suitable for? What time on Tuesday would it be the same time? 7.30 to 8.30. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Really appreciate your time. Okay. So think about what's been said. Any questions that arise from this class, make a note of it. Read in the morning tomorrow, um, see what you understand and make notes of any questions. Um, they don't have to be from the Sunday class. It could be from any class or any general questions and we'll raise it. If you have the question already, try and post it before the class. Yeah, if that's possible, so we can all think about it. If not, it's not a problem. And also, uh, if everybody could like maybe take a turn in posing, a, you know, putting a question up because. It, if it there's is... a lot of questions, then we can do that. So let's see how, how it, uh, Dharmesh. My, my question is, maybe for this Tuesday's class, if you come to our plane of life because you have desires, yeah, and Krishna is an enlightened soul, why is he here? So he's not enlightened because he's still on earth, isn't he? He's here to educate us. So he can help us. You heard the metaphor, Plato's cave. Google Plato's cave. That'll tell you why, why Krishna's here. Google that, yeah? Plato's cave. That'll give you an understanding of why Krishna's here. Um, so before, hang on, before, uh, so Tuesday, 7.30, we'll see how it goes, how many questions there are, and then we'll we'll take it from there. So let's start that. Kel. I was just going to say, I think why Krishna, I mean, a possible reason why Krishna could still be there is, um, I think earlier we said that once you exhaust your desires or your vasanas, uh, you you would still continue to live because you still have certain desires you need to fulfill or that momentum that you've built, that inertia essentially that you've built will carry you mm -hmm. forward for X amount of years, I guess. And then only would you, would you move on, right? Absolutely. That is true for all of us. But as far as Lord Krishna is concerned, yes, we can't really say why he's here, why he's not here. Did he become self-realized while he was alive here in this birth? We don't know, but we know that he's here as Lord Krishna to give us this knowledge, yeah, to, so that we can educate ourselves and become better human beings and use his knowledge as guidance. And it doesn't matter the merit of why did he come or why didn't he come. It's not important. What's important is, see, his teachings. Jesus Christ, why did he come? Why didn't he come? You can't question that. We're not at the level of understanding that even. You know, we can't even understand what he's saying. How can you understand him, the perfect human being? From, an from a state of imperfection, which we all are, how can you stand, understand perfection? See? So, 
Dharmesh, you're absolutely right with your question. For general people, people, normal people who reach that state. But when it comes to Lord Krishna, we're not in a position to understand him yet. Is that okay, Dharmesh? Okay, great. Well, we'll see some of you on Tuesday then. All right. Have a great Sunday.